This is a Sharp Old Hat podcast and my name is Chris. I was waiting for a few months to have this chat with Fergus while he was traveling the high seas. He is straight talking, opinionated, humorous, well-informed, thoughtful and deeply concerned. We agreed on many of the topics we discussed and some may not share those views. However, a podcast should be a forum where ideas can be expressed without restraint. This one is anyway. This is a conversation with Fergus Quinlan. The crunch came um, when I started asking just too many questions yeah. of my parents. And then they sent me off to the priest to ask the questions, and of course it got worse and worse and worse, because their answers were absolutely ridiculous. And so, because I have a <coughs> strange mind, I always remember some poor priest, I asked him for a definition of a saint. He said, somebody who can guarantee that we put people to heaven. I said, oh, well, I can, I can do that, I can guarantee that. I said, if I could do that, could I get to heaven? He said, yeah, okay. <laughs> all I need is a gun, and I stand outside the church, and when all the babies have just been baptised and they come out, I shoot six of them, because that's all of the bullets I have. So I've definitely put six souls in heaven, is that correct? You know, you can't do that. <laughs> I said, hang on a minute, your logic says I have no guarantee, and I have not allowed them to go to hell for eternity, so I've saved them from hell for eternity. I said, that's not how it works. Well, you tell me how it works. <laughs> and it just went bad to worse. Yeah. Because once you go down the route of stealing away from logic, you'll get into deeper and deeper yeah. trouble. And then it kind of all went kind of pear-shaped when I suppose I had children mm. and decided, you know, because they were all getting ready for the um, baptisms. As it was done in the 70s. Oh yeah, yeah there sure. wasn't even a question yeah. when is the baptism organised for I said, well, I, as soon as they agree to it. Yeah. Who agrees with the child? Yeah. I said, when they're 18, they might want to be baptised or they might not, and if they do, I will stand outside them, but they may not. Yeah. I, and they said, but you can't do that. I said, well, I can. And they said, we'll never speak to you again. But that lasted about a week, yeah. and that was the end of it. Yeah. That was fine after that. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit different now, like, but I would imagine, particularly when, when, when you're talking about a, sort of a small society, which Ireland would have been in the 60s and 70s, meaning not a lot of diversity, and um, obviously transport and information was you know, available only in, 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 in not in one way or one direction, but wasn't available to everyone the way it is now. Like, you know, you had your whatever, two or three papers and transport would have been confined to a few people had a car, but then it's the bus and the, and the train. Mm. Like, mm. yeah, so it's a, it's a small society in that sense. Like, yeah. and then everybody does what everybody else does. It's in the nature of the thing. And in a way it was a, I think a much freer society. Certainly when I grew up, I mean, apart from the schools, which were unbelievably appalling, but, um, uh, my greatest break in life came when polio came to Cork. You know, polio d d disease. Yeah. I was sent out to the country uh, to a farm for three months in the <laughs> year. And I was ta talking to the people from the farm recently. They said, you must have had a her terrible time there when you went because there was no electricity and there was uh, no stoves or anything like that. And there was no toilets. I said... You have no idea how much I enjoyed it and how I learned so much. Yeah. Such, I was fantastic, it was total freedom. Yeah. And nobody ever said no to me. I had horses, I had cattle, I had sheep, pigs, and I quickly, quickly learned, I said, they said, the toilet is out there. Yeah. 
<laughs> and you sorted it out and you found out that you only went for crap where there was good leaves and certain grasses and there was no nettles and, and eventually you could adapt very well and of course you lose, use no toilet paper so everything was organic and you watch it's called, it's called a river and a stream and uh, and then you had uh, electricity so I said what did you do at night well I just talked and in front of the fire and I said I'll never forget it and I said no, people are staring at this box. I said, the standard of living is actually much higher. And, and I learned so much, and particularly from the uncle who was, they were all in the IRA at the time, and they had been chasing Brits. Um, but they were, people have very few words. And I'd be often in the shed, standing on one side, they'd be at the other side of one of them, and lashing away, and, and he'd say afterwards, I think I'll fix the, fix the door in the headhouse. Right. So the first thing you do is sharpen the saw, and you take down and show me how to sharpen the saw. And from there we got a bit of room for that. So all my life, from the very early, said, if you have something, you should be able to fix it. If you can't fix it, don't have it. And therefore I learned they were fixing the tractors, horses, stitching leather, everything was around me. And I took it for granted that you could do all these things. That stood by me all through my life. That's actually odd with the fixing thing. Like we had um, this uh, guy from the Czech Republic, like here helping us with the house, <coughs> and um, would have been about my age, like maybe a little bit younger, like you know, really good guy. But he never threw anything out. He just saved everything, and he used shit later, whether that would have been nails, screws, uh, bits of timber, or whatever. Because um, having lived in East Berlin as well for quite some time. Um, when you when you're grown up in a in an environment of scarcity, you don't replace, you mm. fix. Yeah, that was the most fascinating thing. Like, and um, I, I I couldn't tell you the amount of money we saved by just someone having the mindset of no no just put that to the side. We might need it tomorrow or next week, and no we don't need to replace this. We can just fix this. It's unbelievable. Oh, well, it, it is a mindset, right? Because and you can use it for so many other things now. Yeah. No, it's very much, if there's anything wrong with it, you dump it and you yeah. just get a new one. Yeah. And of course, when you work out the cost, you say, oh God, <laughs> that, that is a sensible thing to do. But of course, you're now leading into a very highly wasteful society. Yeah. And uh, you don't see a way out of this because yeah. the thing is, everywhere you look is to expand, consume, expand, consume. And everything is measured and how good the consumer society is running, how much it consumes. And the more it consumes, the more successful it is. Said, well, this is leading into a nice little hole. <laughs> so, it's a yeah fascinating place we're in politically, uh, environmentally, in so many different directions. An awful lot of things I feel now. Maybe I'm just getting old and pessimistic. Are coming to a head. I look around me and I get scared. And I get scared for children. I can tell you, and I get scared for grandchildren. You know what I mean? Because uh, it looks tricky. Yeah, it looks tricky. Right, uh, yeah. And the other thing is population. When I was born. 77 years ago, there was 3.5 billion. Yeah. And now there's 8.1. And I say, ah, it might stop at a, 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 a 10 billion. It might. I, I said, but we can't sustain what we have. And they said, oh, we can, yeah. I said, tell that to the people who are dying every four seconds in Africa from dirty water and hunger. Yeah. I said, I'm sure they're having a wonderful time of consumerism. Well, that's, it's, it's a tricky one um, because... the. the, the was about two weeks ago there were statistics released there um, there were there was a 
three-way UN um, prediction of how the um, population development could go worldwide. I don't know if you saw that. There's the, the mid-range uh, prediction was that the population um, in the next, was, was it 30 or 40 years, so a generation to two generations, may kind of level off in around 9 to 10 million. There were predictions on the upper scale that it goes way above 12 billion people. And there was a prediction that um, the population actually decreases back to less than 7 billion people. Um, I don't know what kind of models they applied and all the rest of it, but there's an argument there that um, we can actually sustain with genetically modified food and all the rest of it a lot more people than we have at the moment. I don't know the first thing about it, but it strikes me more it's uh, the distribution of wealth and information that is uneven here that makes the planet such a desperate place at the moment. And that inequality of distribution is dramatically growing. The rich are dramatically Absolutely. getting richer, the poor are dramatically getting poorer. And the only way you can really stabilise a population is education, particularly among women. And that education, you have to look at the most densely populated areas of the world and you can see, well, is it growing or is it falling? And uh, it's about balancing up, but in some areas it's falling dramatically because of climate change. And, yeah. and, and the more it falls, the more children you have. But then you could say, oh, well, isn't it cancelled out by the death rate? Oh, well, isn't that a wonderful way to look at society? <laughs> yes, so I said, you know, it's, you could just shut your eyes to it. And uh, which maybe is what we should do, because uh, there was a fellow I used to read some time ago, I don't know if you're James Lovelock. No. And uh, he was a kind of a British uh, environmentalist. He's now dead. He died at 104, so he didn't do too bad, I suppose. Um, and just before he died, they were asking Mr. Lovelock, what do you think of the situation with regard to the environment? And he paused and he said, I would buy some high quality champagne and fine wines and really enjoy them. He said, but you haven't answered the question on, on the environment and the population. He said, I emphasise again, he said, I would buy champagne and fine wine and, and enjoy life as one could. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so well, that doesn't sound very optimistic. <laughs> and then he, he went off and died, probably from over-drinking champagne. Well, I mean, that's pragmatic and not the worst way to go, I suppose, at the age of 104. Yeah, but he'd, he'd been writing yeah. these books for 20 years and yeah. warning, my final warning, my final... <laughs> and, uh, but it's tricky, um, you know, for non-scientific people like myself, I consider myself reasonably well informed or at least being able to discern and gather and discern information. But um, is all that, um, all those predictions um, which lean towards um, the environment being utterly destroyed and all this climate change is going rapidly south, alarmism or isn't it? I really have absolutely no idea what to believe. Well, it's just a sheer numbers. We just take a simple, a simple little forest like the Amazon. As people grow, they need more land, and and there's huge pressure. Like in Ireland, we're covered in oak forest, mm -hmm. and uh, we just came in and started farming. And you you burn down the trees, you cut down the trees, and eventually there's hardly a patch of oak in the entire 
place and there's nowhere you can look in Ireland or in the border or anywhere that the hand of man isn't everywhere. Yeah. Every single hill you look at, you see it's lots of fantastic natural well actually it's not actually. We actually destroyed all the woods up there, everything. And if you go up there and you'll see the remnants of all where people lived and when I asked the question before, I said, Why do they all leave? Oh we're not sure why they all left. I said, Did they cook their food or did they eat it all raw? <laughs> oh they cooked, yeah. What do they use as fuel? Uh, timber and I said so they start to burn the timber around them and they make their houses out of the timber around them and bit by bit every day they go further and further yeah. and they eventually say oh can't live here anymore yeah. I said amazing isn't it and we will learn that lesson over and over and over again and was that overpopulation yes it was because they were populating the best place to live near of the course. sea near the woods you're hunting you're fishing you're everything sure and uh, all around me, I see fish stocks declining dramatically. And uh, like we were off sailing, we had this, you, you go everywhere, particularly up in Scotland, North of Ireland, heading up towards Scotland, the other Hebrides. All the photographs of the hundreds of seine net boats that were fishing for herring. And a fantastic looking sight in the harbours. And the conclusion always is the herring went away. Where'd they go? I have no idea where they went away, but there was tens of thousands of boats out fishing every day, and then the herring yeah. just went away. Yeah. So, and now we're after some other species. Yeah. And then we say, oh, well, it'll all balance out at the end. I said, yeah, maybe it will. But one does get a touch pessimistic at times. Yeah. I know I, I could see what you mean. Like, and I, I would be more like um, that chap you were talking about who bought loads of champagne and drank it all. Like, I <laughs> most definitely close my eyes to an awful lot of things. That's down to personal laziness, but uh, I always believe that um, I pick one or two or three battles um, and I most certainly can't involve myself with all the other world no, causes you that are out there. No, like, same. Yeah. No, you, you, you take care of the people around you, one that one yeah. loves as best one can, and, yeah. and yourself. If you don't love yourself, you can't love anybody well, else, course, so yeah. you just have to kind of have a good life as best you can and uh, help out where you can. Yeah. But you're not going to sacrifice, well, I'm not going to sacrifice my life for a cause. I'd tie myself to trees and be bulldozed on or whatever. Yeah. You know, sometimes you'd like to, but you won't. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I suppose that has been, I've always been involved a bit. Mm. I was way back in Dublin when I got involved in, I was training to be an architect. And then there was the, the demolition of a lot of the Georgian buildings. And that was an interesting battle because it had the beauty of the Georgian buildings on one side, but we were also in the Dublin Housing Action Committee. And there was a clash of two, almost two separate cultures, and I got stuck in the middle. And we occupied some buildings, which were very interesting to occupy a building. You just walk in, and the civil service said, you can't come in here. I said, we're not only we're just coming, we're staying. And they said, you can't stay where we are staying. And then the police arrived and they go, oh, God, let me out of here because this is, this, this, this is illegal and civil and all sorts of things involved. So they were occupied. And then eventually the split came because people just wanted them as, as Georgian buildings, but fake the homeless. And we were saying, well, the homeless come first. So I suppose that's what shifted me in then to more radical politics in Dublin. Because yeah. I said, well, you could close your eyes to all that or just stay with the architectural Georgia side preserving of buildings, which I still am interested in. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, there was an on, another side, which was uh, organising socialist parties and communist parties and stuff like that, which I got involved in for donkey's years and learned a great deal. Yeah. 
people we met and organising and, and there was always various battles going on. But what would your like personal kind of favourite battles be? Things in left-wing politics that were closer to your heart than <coughs> others. Like what would be your one, two, three sort of main areas of concern in those days? Well, in those days, I suppose, the first demonstration I was involved in and helped to organise were Vietnam, yeah. obviously. Okay. That and that was in Cork and we were told we have to get off the streets, we have to go anyway. Yeah. We did what we wanted to do and that was it. And then the, the next stage was, I suppose, the bigger ones would have been in London. I started as a student going to London. And there was two major things going on. One was the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So I got involved in an awful lot of um, disruption of rugby matches in yeah. Dublin and around the place and demonstrations in uh, London. And then a, the bog site exploded in Northern Ireland. And that's when it got really rough because we had 10,000 on the streets and then we had 50,000 and then we had 55,000, I think is as much as we got, and uh, decided to burn down the Ulster office in London. And uh, there was many <coughs> interesting battles. I mean, there were massive, wide-scale battles between us and police. And uh, I was, at the time, with the London anarchists. An interesting group of gentlemen, and they're fabulous, we were great fun actually. But well, we determined that the only way to bring down a cavalry charge was with bags of marbles. It's extremely oh, successful. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it caused absolute mayhem. Yeah. And it was very violent. Yeah. And uh, we were in the middle of it, but I... <laughs> we were eventually kind of almost beaten off the streets, but not quite. There was a lot of uh, buses with policemen in it, yeah. and disappearing we just made the buses disappear yeah. policemen running for their lives so it was very but at the same time say, how did you how did you succeed with that yeah. the next day the B specials were abolished and there's a huge change in Northern Ireland and the British Army went in to restore peace and order and we said I'm not sure if this is going to work out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't for 25 years nevertheless it was a change one yeah. way or the other and then, of course, there was the rise of nationalism in Ireland. Yeah. And then we did everything to oppose that. Because up to then, we had Protestant and Catholic together, all the students united yeah. on the civil rights. But once the IRA raised its heads, once the nationalist flags yeah. started to wave, everybody went back to their camp. Yeah. And that was the beginning of a terrible bloodbath of nationalism and appalling uh, reactionary politics. Yeah. And... We then refocus, I suppose, on, uh, you wouldn't might be familiar with the Constitution of Ireland, but the Articles 2 and 3 of the Constitution laid claim to the North. Yeah. So we campaigned extensively uh, and won and got those abolished. No, not just that there was lots of socialists and communists, but, but also Bourgeois Donald would have agreed with us. Yeah. Uh, so these were minor victories along the road of kind of suppressing nationalism. And yet I realise why the nationalists were, if I'd been pushed around and bullied and beaten up in, in the north, I think you it, it was easy enough sometimes to pick up a gun. Yeah, I would and, imagine so. Um, but that was not the way to go. Yeah. And if you were to go down that path, then the civil wars were always looking at us and, and oh, God, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't bear thinking about And yet we still have the consequence, and we're still whinging and whining about up in the north looking for peace, and we still 
of sectarian education, yeah. Protestant schools, Catholic schools. And that is the stuff that really gets up my goat when I hear these whinging politicians saying, well, we must all look for peace and find ways yeah. to get peace. And you suggest that, and they say, oh, well, no, that's a cultural thing. No, you must say, oh, yeah, it is indeed. Well, I'm, I'm looking at this ever since I arrived in Ireland over 30 years ago um, with sort of sense of wonder and bewilderment because I grew up in West Berlin in the 1970s and 80s. I haven't got an ounce of nationalism or patriotism in me. I mean, technically, I was born stateless in West Berlin because West Berlin wasn't part of the Federal Republic. Um, that had a couple of perks as well. But, um, like, there was absolutely nothing in a sense of um, educating us to, you know, be German, if you want, um, in school and throughout. Like, so I, I just look at patriotism and nationalism like a three-year-old at a Christmas tree. It's like, why do people do that? It's, it's a bit like religion to me. It's like, that doesn't make any sense to me, but let them carry on. I find it interesting. Well, it makes perfect sense yeah. because it divides and conquers. There's nothing better to divide people than nationalism. You wave one little flag and another little flag, yeah. and then you wave one vision of Jesus or another vision of Allah or whatever, and people are beating the shit out of each other, and capitalism thrives. Yeah. I mean, obviously, as a species, we like our tribe, you know, whether yeah, it is religion, divide. politics, football, you name it, we pick our tribe yeah. if we can, like... Yes, the most dangerous also the international. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, to actually talk of peace and uniting people worldwide is, wow, that's really radical stuff. You can't be going there. Yeah. I said, well, without that, you're not going to solve huge problems that we face. Yeah. And that's the... Basically, if you're talking about climate change, I said the first thing I come up with is that <coughs> years and years ago, there was a kind of this mythology that we'd be attacked by the Martians. Whatever they are. <laughs> And when the Martians attack, we'll all unite in human terms and all the armies and all the people will get together and fight the Martians when the Martians have arrived. And it's climate change and we need to all forget about our nationalism, our borders, unite and take on the struggle. Well, forget about that because there's not much money in that business. So it's down to so many contradictions of interests. And uh, there's, there's one, one question you always learn about what is going on, whether it's Russia, Ukraine, whatever. Who benefits? Kobano. Um, would you would you like I as a thinking person, um, I would pin down a lot of um, the problems we see in the world, like when you mention Russia and Ukraine um, or other kind of hotspots away from climate change, which is a global problem, obviously can only be tackled in a global way uh, with a response. But um, I do believe more and more so that um, the root of um, the conflicts we have in this world are less down to religion anymore but are really down to capitalism and the failure of the concept of capitalism which wants to sell it us at its core that um, greed is human nature that mm -hmm. it is human nature that we want more and by laying out that premise as um, the foundation of everything that then leads to capitalism is something that I find just a false narrative. It's, oh, yeah, made no, 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 totally it's completely agree. made up. And, and I hate to mislead you and say that I think the religion or nationalism is a problem. These are just tools. Yeah. These are just tools to divide people by the real forces. And the real forces are not national, they're multinational, international. Yeah. In fact, 
the, the, the corporation doesn't recognise any borders. It doesn't recognise <laughs> yeah. it. it. It's just a corporation mm-hmm. and it can be from anywhere. Nobody knows actually who owns anything anywhere. It's a, it's yeah. a corporation and their interests are the main interests because um, it's, it's, it's like a self-fulfilling monster. It must constantly expand. It must constantly create uh, profit and it, it constantly looks for new markets and new land. So what capitalism has developed to a certain point, it then turns into imperialism. You know, we've got to go into the other lands and start taking their lands. And that was, I suppose, every uh, advanced country in Europe basically owned Africa, took it over and said, well, that's ours. And still, and still do. They, they might have pa- passed over a lot of the running of Africa to various uh, stooges and people that are under their control. But nevertheless, the wealth has been sucked out of Africa and that's the guy around with collection boxes looking for help to poor people of Africa. So fuck that, you know. <laughs> uh, we know how Africa became poor. But also, that expansion, oh, they look at the, the vast territory of Russia and say, ooh, this could be exploited much better and all those resources. So there's two objects then, and that's World Hegemony for that group, if you like, that outlook, if you like, of... Um, of, of, of imperialism that comes, it's almost specifically UK, US, Western imperialism. But that doesn't mean to say France and all those are totally involved because there is, the, the national dimension doesn't exist, honey. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a super national dimension. Yeah. And they, they thought, well, they used poor Ukraine, got a load of uh, they were sucked into this as in this proxy war and it's just not it's not turning out well at all there's going to be no winners that's for sure <laughs> one way or the other it's going to be just losers losers the only people i say who winners are the the people who started this fire and uh, are now selling vast amounts of arms and equipment and vast amount of much more expensive gas than we used to have yeah. and energy so it's benefit enormously and that's the first thing you ask in any conflict it's like the detective ends up comes into the house there's somebody with a knife in his back yeah. and you say All right, let's check the insurance policies like who benefits around here and you start working your way out who benefits and what's even more dangerous now is when this question starts who benefits that you, you get to a kind of a prosecution then after this I don't know I'm jumping around here but but in the normal course of events with judicial thinking, you, you, you analyse an object with a prosecution. You prosecute, you say, this is the case. But then you also have a question on a defence. Yeah. But in so many of the cases now, it's only the prosecution is allowed. The defence has been abolished because anything on the defence side, oh, well, that's Kremlinite, that's uh, you know, run, running stooges of Putin, whatever it is. Yeah. So that is withdrawing. And it's quite scary what's going on. Like the the news, uh, RT, because that's the one I happen to listen to. I don't watch television. Got rid of that forty years ago. But uh, <laughs> um, just listen to the news. You, you, you just, it's so one-sided. It's unbelievably one-sided. And it's so it's it's just not just anti-Russia, but it's it's almost ra- it's racist now. Yeah. Everything to do with Russia is racist. But that has been the case way before the Ukraine war. Way before anything like this, because I mean, we were personally involved. I was personally involved in trying to get an art exhibition from Russia to here. And wow, what we ran into! And it was a fascinating adventure, like to actually try and do it. But that's a that's a whole interesting story. Well, it is like um, I'm, I'm sure you would have read Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. 
I didn't use that, but I, I, I'm yeah. very familiar with an awful lot of his work. Out there for yes. 40 years, like. Um, I, I've just, um, just recently I'm in the process of reading it again, like, you know, and finding um, that um, obviously it is somewhat outdated, even the revised version that goes back 20 years ago. Obviously, that influx now of the new media, it's just a different way now with the internet of distributing information. Some of the models actually still hold true, some of the models are simply not applicable anymore because of independent or let's just say a much larger variety of media not all of it is independent obviously but let's let's go to RTE I mean wouldn't shouldn't you think that Ireland as a small country and nominally um, independent in terms of neutrality international neutrality shouldn't you think that we should have the most free press, I avoid the word liberal, but the most free press in the world? We should have. And, and how come that we don't? It would be a fantastic thing because we're enthralled to uh, basically one side of Washington and that is the so-called democratic side in Washington. And not the Republican side of Washington, but the democratic side of Washington, whatever they say goes here. And almost everything that you, you hear Washington say is reflected immediately in the BBC. An hour later, it's reflected in RT. Whatever the line is, whatever the, if you like, what's the common phrase now, the, the, the singing out of the hymn book. And it's almost precisely word for word. If this, there's, and it's dividing into just goodies and baddies. And not only that, but like, for instance, like, for instance Russia appears to be able to kill civilians every day with a missile, but with 100 billion pounds worth of munitions poured in, uh, the Ukrainian side never have killed any civilians on the other side. Like, it's just... And, and the whole question of Donbass and the whole question of uh, Victoria Newland and pouring in billions uh, of dollars to undermine the democratically elected government, whether it was good, bad or indifferent, is not the point. You can't go... And, and, and they've done this over and over and over again. In fact, we were only the anniversary of Chile the other day, yeah. which is a perfect example, just pouring in money and then you uh, get a gang, support one side, and then you just kill anybody on the left wing. That's it, just kill them all. Mm -hmm. And when people say, that, well, you know, Ukraine must get its territory back, is it, get the Russians out. Yeah. Which Russians had you in mind? Is it the ethnic Russians? Do they have to actually kill all those? And then would that be good? So it's only a certain amount of Ukrainians. It's not the pure Ukrainian speaking who uh, support uh, Stefan Bandera and the fascist part. And uh, in fact, if you actually celebrate in some countries now the victory over fascism, well, then you're obviously criminal students. So it's good. So I see this now as very much uh, kind of a fascism attacking Russia again. Not the first time. <laughs> it goes back. You could go back to uh, France, had a go, few goals at Sweden. In fact, everybody had a go at Russia at one stage. Yeah. And they all came out with bloody noses. And uh, I see Russia now as the one standing for civilization. <laughs> and the people said, but there's no freedom of speech over there. I used to say, tell that to Julian Assange, yeah. who's in Belmarsh, and ask why Julia, uh, Edward Snowden is walking around Moscow. Yeah. I said, explain that. It's all about that immediately, because I'm a Kremlin stooge, whatever. Yeah. I don't mind. Well, I, I, I agree, actually, with the logic, uh, intuitively and... Um, yeah, I mean, from from sort of uh, me informing myself over the last two years, ever since this uh, particular crisis came to a head, like, um, but 
I still find myself concluding more and more so that um, the, um, the actual military conflict itself is, like any other military conflict, fought on the back of ordinary people. There are no rich guys in the trenches. They're never no, 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 definitely not. Um, but that um, going deeper, that the economic interests of corporations, and as you said earlier, rightly so, that they're not national anymore. They're international. And um, when I look at the beneficiaries of that particular conflict, um, it really spans a global network and it is individuals or individual corporations that benefit greatly and I can't really pin down for myself um, a conflict between two countries. I really can't. No. And um, that's where I kind of am sitting a little bit on the fence of taking any kind of site in a positive light that or I want to avoid the comparative to begin with, but I'd say the bad Russians or the good Russians and the bad Ukrainians and the bad, yeah. uh, the good Ukrainians. Um, it's really just a conflict that is benefiting certain parts, individuals or individual corporations, um, but globally, meaning um, that um, McDonald's, just say McDonald's, um, the Russian shareholders profit as much as the Ukrainian shareholders. And that's where I find myself a bit conflicted when oh, it comes to know. defining it as a, as a conflict between two countries. Yeah, well, there's, uh, nobody is defending any oligarchs in, in Russia, yeah. and we wish we got back to a more egalitarian type of society. But nevertheless, as it stands now, uh, and the history of Russia, and who it supported in their national liberation struggles right throughout Africa, right throughout Asia, right, we, you must take that to cognizance. And you also take it to cognizance, you know, the, what has been said by Medov and, and by uh, Putin, I suppose, in their attempts over and over again to get peace here. Uh, what are the two? The Minsk Agreement one and Minsk Agreement two. Uh, now, both of those turned out to be lies on behalf of the West. Uh, France and Germany lied copiously. Absolutely. So Russia can't trust anybody anymore. And for since, I suppose, at the Bolshevik Revolution, and we sent in, I think, 18 various armed forces to overthrow it, and they all had to be defeated by the Red Army, we've never forgiven the Russians for the fact that they could organise and say that all the wealth, all the resources, all the it's all ours now. You can't do that, it's illegal, well, we've just done it. Yeah. And that's it. So that was the first time that humanity gave a huge chance for humanity to be free, to be free of capital. And was it successful? No, it wasn't in the end, because you see, I think socialism is a, to, for it to work, is a bottom-up movement. Mm-hmm. And yet war is a top-down movement. And all you've got to do is keep the country at war and under pressure. And you end up with guys like Stalin running the show. Yeah, of course. And you have to have a Stalin if you're going to win the Second World War. And uh, you can't have a bottom-up democracy to run that. And since then, you keep the pressure on, whether it be Cuba. You can just keep a military pressure on every country. And socialism is a kind of a very delicate flower, as far as I'm concerned. And it needs to be able to flourish, but instead you just piss poison on it and you wonder why it doesn't work. Um, but So nevertheless, my heart, in a way, lies and I see 
with the Russian side. And they have been poking the bear. Mm. I mean, the, the easiest way is to just look at the military bases that Russia has put around America and China's put around America, zero. Yeah. And uh, the amount of bases that are around both China and Russia at the moment, like it's completely surrounded. Yeah. And then we keep poking them. And then every time on our media, every you can only say bad things about Russia. You can never say anything positive, yeah. anything. This actually, um, we get back to the to the bases actually in a moment, but um, let's go back to the media, which I found um, interesting enough that in the Irish media, it was like I have a relatively big media around because um, obviously of my international context, like, you know, I read the German media, I read American media, Irish media, British media, French and Italian media, just that I can read those languages. Um, just do, do my newspaper round in the morning. I'm not reading every paper there is, but the typical round. But um, the Irish media actually was relatively liberal in when the conflict, the military conflict started to point out that um, the trouble began really in the aftermath of the collapse of um, the Soviet Union that Russia were promised um, going back to the negotiations if there was a reunification of Germany possible and that they were promised that NATO would not expand mm -hmm. um, eastward and the, the Russians were hard done by because they were not in, in a position of negotiating anything as the Soviet Union collapsed and all its institutions. And the Irish media were kind of balanced enough about a year and a half ago to point this out too. But what I found then very interesting was when the Nord Stream 2 pipeline blew up, the Irish media were very quick to jump on the bandwagon of the narrative that was colported right in the aftermath of um, Nord Stream 2 being blown up. And then it emerged that um, it wasn't all what the media reported at first the Russians blew up that pipeline. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> there were investigations and funny enough, um, you find reports on the outcome of whatever is apparent now in the German media, whereas the Irish media completely dropped the subject after about 10 days. Two mm -hmm. weeks didn't even take two weeks. No, they don't. No, it never happened. And that was something I found remarkable. And why is it that Ireland did not, um, yeah, continue with at least trying to present on RT on the national broadcaster this balanced view they had at the or they seem to have had at the start of the military conflict about a year and a half ago? How come? Well, I think the, the, the argument they would have is there's so much foreign direct investment from America in Ireland. We have to be really careful what we say about the Americans. And, for instance, two days ago I was down at Shannon Airport on my monthly protest mm -hmm. uh, against the use of Shannon Airport for military purposes. And the amount of millions now of soldiers who have gone through, they're fully armed. And, uh, as I said, never searched on those aircrafts. We have reason to believe that uh, cluster munitions have all been shipped through uh, uranium-tipped missiles, but nothing is checked. But we don't have to because the Americans told us no, we wouldn't. We don't. We don't ship any arms through uh, the air the, the, the airbase or <laughs> Shannon. And like I said, it's an amazing amount of unarmed troops heading all over the world. Tens of millions of unarmed troops. They just go over there, obviously, there must be. No, it's, it's ridiculous. And it's a, a total lies everywhere. Yeah. 
And uh, so we're constantly pointing this out. It's all we could do. It, it just embarrasses the government a great deal. The only friends we have down there are the local police who get a lot of overtime every time we turn up. <laughs> and they all go... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's these are just token events and uh, there's very few down there but we say look it's just we just keep a flickering flame alive alive to annoy people but you're doing this for a long time aren't you they've been doing it for oh, 25 years or something yeah. like that just since, since they started using yeah. it the first it's just that little little tiny little needle that's sticking in the yeah. side of something that just annoys people yeah. and uh, yeah there's and, and of course we're all ancient. There's no young people down there. Uh, like I'd be one of the youngest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I exaggerate slightly, uh, but uh, no, there's no interest in in, in peace. In, it's in, not a sexy in cause. Sorry. It's not a sexy cause. No. That's. Um, anyway, uh, we we just do, but that that's that's part and parcel. No, no, that's never reported on RT. It's never reported even. Um, so. How do you change that? You, you, we can't really. The, the media is very much controlled by the... Int- by, I suppose it's the establishment. You have to look at what interests does the establishment have. The interest of the establishment is very much pro uh, the democratic side of America. And, and they, rec- they regard them as left-wing. God only knows what that came about to be. But, <laughs> um, and, and that's where they stand. But the arguments are very confused. And in fact... When you go down any argument, they just drop it and say, I don't discuss that. And an awful lot of people whom I knew and were friends with have just got up alongside me and walked away and said, I don't want to talk to you again, ever. Really? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Into my face. Said, no, don't, don't, I, don't, I don't want to talk to you. Though. Because, as I said, the, the truth can bear argument forever, mm. but the lie can't. Yeah. So you just repeat that. You're comfortable with it and you don't want that disturbed this is your viewpoint it's very fixed it's focused and the last thing you need is somebody coming in and talking to you about Julian Assange in the jail in Belmarsh and stuff like that you know they're just they're uncomfortable with it and we want to be comfortable so go away yeah do you actually um in 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 your way of being outspoken about your politics like do you actually find it um you find yourself often in a position where you fall out with people you were relatively closely associated with over political argument or do you kind of find that um, over the years that you have found a way to achieve compromise with people you don't agree with? Uh, It's an interesting observation because at a time I used to follow with people over religion argument. They're gone. (laughs) You don't follow anybody on religion. Everybody kind of agrees with you. I'll be glad you get on. I'll be glad. But you do find uh, at the moment that's what's the hot argument is Ukraine. And yes, people have definitely fallen out with me over that. Uh And, uh, you know, uh, come up to me and and insulted me in the street. You know, and, and without allowing an argument in our discussion, it's just you're a Kremlin stooge and you're a this and that. And all you're doing is looking for the most dangerous thing in the world, which is peace, actually. <laughs> implementing an immense agreement and stuff like that. So uh, then you kind of say, ah, forget it. I, 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 <laughs> you know. The reason I'm asking, um, we just had this conversation um, a couple of weeks ago um, going back to the lockdown and COVID. Mm. Do you know how some people um, took the vaccinations, others didn't, they opposed it very vociferously, then uh, other people on the other side came in again, we should make vaccinations mandatory and so forth. Like, 
And I found that just very interesting, actually stunningly interesting to observe how neighbors fell out with each other um, over get vaccinated, not get vaccinated, masks, no masks, should we have masks in the garden or in the car and all that sort of thing. And those fences had in many cases not been mended um, two years on now, mm -hmm. you know, where people find it very difficult to say, actually, sorry, Patty or Mary, I think I was wrong here. Or actually, I can see now, I uh, still hold my opinion I had at the time, but I can see now that we both went overboard with our arguments, let's shake hands and have a pint. That doesn't seem to happen. People mm. still kind of mm, hold a grudge and there's a lot of distance between former friends and neighbors now, which I can observe in our road here. Mm. Mm. Very strange. Well, I do notice a big change coming in this because I do see a falling away from the vaccine, the pro-vaccine argument, kind of a, the whole thing is coming, yeah, yeah, I would have the vaccine. Information has changed, yeah, So fair enough. But I, I had been making the point all the time is that I, I think, and there's a very good reason not to trust all the vaccines until all the pharmaceutical indus industries are under public control and they are, patently can be seen to serve the interests of the public, not the interests of their shareholders. Once that contradiction is there, there's there's a kind of a suspicion that actually maybe they're just serving the interests of shareholders, not my interest. And that goes back to so many drugs that were released on the market in the from thalidomide and there's so that you 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 not saying that if they were totally under state control they'd be all perfect. They wouldn't. I'm just saying you have to have a preset of, of, of trust, a foundation, I feel like I'm an architect, and the first yeah. thing you do to build anything, society, trust, confidence, you get the foundations right. And if you don't have the foundations right, no matter what you build on top of that, it starts to crumble and fall apart. Yeah. So and I always start with the first foundations of anything, uh, philosophy. Yeah. To get the uh, well, title of my book was The Poverty of Philosophy, mm. and to get that philosophy sound, and then you can build on top of that. Yeah. But once you have that poverty, it just disintegrates. And that goes back to that yeah. question of vaccinations and the kind of uh, suspicion. Yeah. But personally, then, in my eye, in the defense of science, because I yeah. would be vociferously pro-science, I say to the doctor, what is your recommendation? And he recommends this, and I said... And he said, have you a doubt? I said, if I had a doubt, I'd have a different doctor. Yeah. I said, if you recommend this, that's what I'm going along with because I trust you. And that's it. And what even I notice is, I went, uh, yeah, I, I think you'll be all right now. <laughs> so, uh, look, it was, a, it was a wild time, like, you know, because know. it was all finger in the air stuff. But um, no, there was just... Um, this, this whole point of like fence has not been mended like and yeah, um, you being attacked as uh, Putin's stooge like you know that um, I found myself now with the years being a lot more tolerant towards people who don't hold my opinion and if you want to use that platitude agree to disagree I think it's in most cases the platitude but um, I find myself able to do that now more so than I would have uh, been maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I would, for example, draw the line at racism. Racism is one of my one or two battles I always picked for myself. Um, if it comes to racism, that's where I draw the line and I can fall out with someone 
physically as well. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, I, I take it more on the chin, you know, but maybe they have a point. Maybe they just had a bad day. Maybe they have information I don't have. Maybe I'm well, just I, 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 it. I, I've never run away from anybody. Even on race where I'd always say, no, maybe, mm. maybe if I had an argument this way or that way or the other way, or uh, because I always say to people, they say, well, oh, I hate that day. I said, next thing, his, his son, who he dearly loves, is going over this black girl. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? I said, well, <laughs> That's interesting now, isn't it? Challenging. Had <laughs> <laughs> a great fun, actually. You know, on this, and it's almost racist now, but it's, it's in a pub which is unfortunately closed in Bell Harbour. And Tom's behind the bar, and we're talking about all the... The fellas around here, geez, they're not teaming up with women at all. I said, there's loads of grand women over there now in Gort from Brazil. <laughs> over my dead body he says god i hate it so anyway you're done you see at the end of the bar there's two farmers hanging over the bar and they said and i was saying no no i said to be very good now for the breeding if not for nothing else like you know because we're, t- we're two inbred around here now and and, and there's two farmers said that they're watching us i said tom you lectured us a few months ago on how we should bring in different cattle and different yeah. things. And here you are, people get much healthier. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom was banging the culture. <laughs> and I said, I know that was joking, but the point yeah. is, yeah. it's just human life. Yeah. And the point is, often the most racist person is suddenly trapped when somebody that he really loves, actually, I'd like you to meet so-and-so. And yeah. you're actually involved in another race, whether you like it or not, right. from a, a direction you never expected it to yeah. be. And it can contribute enormously to the wealth of your own life. And when I say wealth, I mean to the intellectual and uh, personal wealth Absolutely, of your own life. Yeah. You know what I mean? To enrich yourself with other cultures. Yeah. And, uh, and as I say, I suppose the main thing is to try and try in all this to establish or maintain some class of sense of humour. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Which is a very powerful thing to yeah. get over some problems. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I've never actually said to anybody, you know, I'll never speak to you again for yeah. any particular reason. I said, I'll deal with that another day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do, you, do you find yourself uh, often enough in the situation where you need to explain your left-wing politics or is it kind of with the years that people know what to expect from you and they won't probe you on it? People you know. Most people don't probe you on it, yeah. like, but they've a good idea where they're coming at. Yeah. But very few people are prone to ask questions at all because yeah. they're not trained to ask questions yeah. and they're, they don't know enough about the subject. The vast majority of people actually do not understand the yeah. basis for capitalism and they certainly don't understand of imperialism, course, yeah. despite the fact having fought against a US, a British imperialism for donkey's years here. Yeah. They actually don't know what that means. Yeah. And they say, well, that's all over those days of God. I said, well, tell that to half the countries in the world. Yeah. Um, so, and it's not taught in school. Yeah. I said, spend much time talking about imperialism and capitalism. I said, these are very basic questions of issues. No, no, rubbish. So my, my feelings on education are unprintable, generally. Yeah. And uh, the longer children spend out of school, the better. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that what you wrote in your book? Because I've only I told you I couldn't read it because of the print and I didn't have my reading glasses. I will know next week. But um, is, uh, I, I've only read it on the, the cover of your book. So the poverty philosophy, it's really aimed at the education um, in the Western world? Well, it covers everything, mm. like education, understanding. Uh, what is what is our main motivating philosophy at the moment? I would say the main motivating philosophy of is competitive greed. Mm. 
Yeah. Competitive greed is good because competitive greed is what stimulates us to work every day and produce more and expand and blah, blah, blah. And I say, wow, that's a bad start to anything. So what is the nature of humans? Oh, humans are by nature greedy and vociferous and fighting, etc. I said, mm. I said, amazing amount of people I know who've done the very best work actually never got paid at all. Mm -hmm. They never look for payment. They're volunteers. And, and I said, I see them all the time, the lifeboats, I see them everywhere. I see them out, uh, and everywhere people lend a hand to everybody, and they always feel really good when they do that. I said, it takes a lot of training and a lot of advertising to turn people from that normal good nature they have into be competitively greedy. And it also takes an educational system to do it. Yeah. So the establishment has to set up the educational system to begin to make children greedy, uh, racist, uh, nationalist, uh, you have to train them because they're not, they, they, you have to learn about these things, you know yeah. what I mean? And you have to learn to hate Russians, of course, and you have to learn loads of stuff like that. And then when you, you get up uh, and you must learn what's the good newspaper, what's the bad newspaper, and, and then what class you should belong to and how you should speak and, uh, and how you should not associate with travelers or something like that. So all these things have to be taught. And, uh, and that's what I see is the poverty of philosophy. Yeah. So what is the alternative to that? Well, it's the philosophy I'm espousing in the book. is basically socialism, cooperative, uh, to, to look at everything that we can solve. Any problem we have, we have more than enough wealth yeah. to solve housing. No problem at all. But to, to just take the housing, the whole nonsense of housing. I mean, I'm an actor, you, ha you have a, a census. Mm. A census every four years. And it does all the you know, questions. And all you've got to do is read the census, and you will know accurately how many houses you need, how many doctors, how many nurses, how many that. Not at all. The census is just taking all the interesting figures, throw it in a book, and then we'll watch the market fill the gaps and the holes. And it doesn't work. Oh, and and we say, oh my God, we have a shortage of housing. What a surprise. <laughs> Why did you do any census? Is there any planning or logic? Ah, oh, planning. You're talking about some sort of socialist society. <laughs> We've tried that, it didn't work. Anyway, so you can see where I'm going with the poverty philosophy. You've got to kind of yeah. get to grips with this. And anyway, you can see I go rabbit on about these things forever. <laughs> but you, you actually made a very interesting point about divisions. I wasn't there at the time, thankfully, just after the civil war in Ireland. Can you imagine what it was like that the things you could not discuss or mention in various houses because that house, the brother had killed that fellow, that house, and that yeah, fellow, yeah. and he was in the Free State Army, and he was in there. Oh my God, can you imagine what it's like? Yeah. I actually, um, I can imagine to some degree what it's like because um, I grew up in Berlin, and when the wall came down in 1989, I mean, my recollection of 89, 1992 is somewhat vague vague because I was 19 and it was a free-for-all. Um, Interesting. Time. I enjoyed it a little bit um, but um, it was a situation that people um, who was a Stasi agent who wasn't people reported on people and they were living in the same house sometimes they yeah. were part of the same family and the family members yeah, didn't know that there yeah. were agents there and and then the files were released um, a lot of information came to light and there was a huge um, individual um, reckoning each and every one of the citizens of the former uh, of former East Germany um, had a file and it came to light what they were up to in those days like 
Um, so yeah, I have some sort of an idea of what that would be mm -hmm. like in the uh, after in the aftermath of the civil war. You know, neighbors yeah, yeah, and families sure. being completely there's a big trench there, like you know, between them all of a sudden, like yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, but the, the um, like going back to the uh, poverty and philosophy, like what other philosophical concepts would you actually espouse other than socialism in order to teach the young to have a large variety of philosophies to choose yeah. from? Associated uh, with socialism, of course, would be internationalism, uh, which is a suppression of nationalism, so it's internationalism. Yeah. And the other one would be humanism. So what is the centre of our philosophy? Is it, is it centred in goodness in a god, and therefore we pay homage <laughs> to God or whatever, or is it centred in the human, the simple human? And you take any human off the street, just grab one, any human, come in here, I just want to talk to you. You'll be a random sample. And you question them on the various precepts of the Bible, not related to the Bible, and you'll find that actually this guy, or woman, or girl, is much better, and much, uh, have a, a, a much more human, much more loving philosophy than would be in the Bible. Yeah. And I could prove that a thousand million times over. And I said, that's just the human, the human. And so go for the human philosophy that you see and it's nice. All around us we see it. We see samples, we see everywhere. And as I say, and, and that's the basis of, 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 of our, our morality. Where does our morality come from? Because that's the first thing I, when I was talking to children about humanism. I gave lectures on humanism. I say, why bother being moral? Why bother? Why not just steal, rape, do what we can get away with? Is there an advantage of being moral or is there an advantage of being immoral? And what do you mean by immoral? What do you mean by being moral? And how would we be, uh, fare? Would we fare better being moral or being immoral? And you just go down to the questions. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's like in every single subject in education, you always deal with children say, maths. Why would you bother learning maths? Give me a good reason to learn maths. Say, ah, don't bother you, wasting your time learning maths. Then you start going through, oh, yeah. Unless they have a solid, firm reason for learning it, then don't bother learning it. Music, what the hell are the interested in music? Bother, it's only noise. It's only noise, banging our system. What the hell is it <laughs> doing? Like, it's just notes strung together. You can string them anywhere. Why bother pursuing that? What's the singing nonsense about it? So, unless you get a firm answer to that, then you have a basis to grow from there in anything. And they get a reason, and that's that's the philosophies I'm after. They get the foundation. Yeah, but it's um, so it would be non-prescriptive, though. Um, if you were to design the universal curriculum for young people, um, would your um, what you describe humanism, socialism, internationalism? Would you make it prescriptive if you were the guy with the magic wand? Oh, you'd have to define prescriptive much more. Um, here's the curriculum. Um, according to Fergus, um, this is what we teach. Um, that would be socialism, internationalism, and humanism. And um, shall we throw out religion altogether? No, because religion is definitely a historical fact. Mm. And why do people have uh, religious beliefs? Where, where do they emanate from? And why would they be there? And can you give me a reason why religious beliefs would be there? How do they emerge, do you think? And what are they based on? Have they any foundation? Is there a connection between religion and spiritualism? What do you mean by spiritualism? And is that a moral force or is it an immoral force? And you just, 
And as for the prescriptive structure of a curriculum, no, you'd have a general foundation of this is the way we're going, because you have to start somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And then, but uh, more and more, you'd allow, um, if you like, the, the children who ask the questions that they will start forming, uh, that form the questions, then it's up to the collective to form the answer. Like, no, let them decide whether they'd rather be moral or immoral. Yeah. What's their basis? Or maybe we'll all become religious. Now we have a little problem. Yeah. Any, have you any particular religion in mind? Or let's do we should invent one. Let's let's build a religion from scratch, and let's say right. What do we have? And would we have a god? Why do we have a god in this religion? How would that would it be male or female? Or does it have to have sex at all? Are they having sex in their procreating gods? Or, or why did, why was it, anyway, you'd open a Pandora's box, and that is not harm. Yeah. The more Pandora's boxes you can open in, in, in a child's brain, the better, because it's exploding. Mm. Uh, but what we do in schools is generally put the lid on that box and press the fecking thing down, and it's only when they give the answers that I determine will be the correct answers in the leaving circuit. Oh, look at how brilliant that child is. It's got the, uh, 10 honours or 40 honours or whatever it is, and it can now become whatever. And and that's his utter bullshit, because that is the prescription for building the society we presently have. And if we think that's a successful society, fine, I don't. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, that, that was the lawyer and me asking that question. Never ask a question without having an answer for it anyway. Um, the way I grew up in West Berlin in the 70s and 80s, like our teachers were either old ones that went uh, through the Second World War as young adults, or um, teachers who qualified um, as teachers in the early 70s, so that means they would have gone through the uh, student revolts of 68 and 69. But any one of those would have taught us growing up um, to question everything. Question the teachers, question the books, question the parents, question yourself. Don't take any information for granted, obviously common uh, of the, um, the experience of the Second World War and the Third Reich and the Holocaust. <laughs> and it was a fantastic upbringing because we were encouraged. Why. Ask a question. If you fuck it up, still ask a question and make up your own mind. And that seems to have been lost now. Definitely with this generation, I would even contest that it was lost um, sort of right after our generation, like my generation, but let's just say in the 90s leading up to the noughties. Mm. And I think that's a brilliant way you uh, describe it to say you basically want to further investigate Investigativeness. Is that a word? Yes, yes. Well, investigativeness. Does people just open your minds, just build your own religion, discuss it, come together, and we find out what our morality should be. Mm. We find out why we should learn about math or geography or whatever it is. Just be mm. inquisitive. Well, it, it applies to everything. People say, oh, well, the socialism would work. So, okay, what sort of social society do you want to work? Or do you want a capitalist society? Tell me the society that. You see the collective people uh, benefiting by it. Now I know you can also say, well, I couldn't give a shit about the collective people. I just want to be successful. I want to be rich. I want to be wildly rich. I want to have so many houses and cars and blah, 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 blah. And I say, well, fine. If that's what you think will make you happy. That's a separate question. We can discuss that further. But uh, so at least let's tease it out. But the point is that's not being done anywhere. Uh, but anyway... We're throwing these wonderful ideas around forever, and uh, I suppose I'll 
he will be asked to die. But well, you you sound a bit you sound a bit um, that you've lost hope in socialism as a concept or social democracy for that matter. No, I haven't. No, as a concept, it, it, yeah. it, 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 it's fine. But what I do see is the power, the sheer power. If, if you like, of international imperialism and capitalism, it's it's so controlling of uh, the, the schools, yeah. the the universities are totally under control now. They're producing just automatons. They'll all exactly answer yeah. the same. And and then I see all the newspapers, the radio, television. Now I see this as a kind of a, a, a kind of all encompassing fascism, and I see. God, it's so hard to take this on. And you can't take it on in any revolutionary sense because the power now of the police and everything, uh, they know literally everything I've said. It's probably been recorded as we speak. In the <laughs> anyway. And uh, we're done. Hey, more <laughs> listeners, I'm glad. <laughs> we're done to Shannon. Like, and it's hilarious because uh, when, when Kay arrived for the first time, within minutes they were up and said, you're being photographed from the left the front and the back and she said I didn't see any photograph because I said you're not watching yeah. I said fellas driving past in the car all the cameras in the back etc and there was a very funny incident because I had this placard you see and it's, it's a full scale American military guy mm. and he's got an M16 rifle you see and it's, it's plywood obviously uh, but it can move up and down like that. Oh, it can fit into the back of the van. Anyway, I can put it down, and within minutes, they were into a squad car, and here comes the unmarked car. You would never be able to tell if it was police. Like. And, uh, and I was hoping they'd come out and arrest me and take away the plywood gun, because I said, you know, there's, there's real ones. I can show you where the real ones are. <laughs> anyway, they didn't. They went away, hopefully. But uh, it, 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 it just goes to show that we, we all have files, and... Yeah. Oh, yeah, Actually, a detective said to me years ago, he said, you have a fabulous file up on the... He says, you have a right to go and see it, by the way. He <laughs> says, you can go up to the castle and demand to see your file. And you can correct it. And said, that's incorrect. That date is wrong. <laughs> and I, that's, I actually know I was a member of the Commons Party as well, just about here. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I have never gone up to the castle to examine the file. But we all have files. Mm. Well, and, I don't know if I have one, probably have one, because I'm in Ireland for long enough. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, uh, German and Ireland. Uh, spy, obviously. <laughs> Prussian. I'm Prussian. I'm not oh, German. Prussian. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, no, but the, 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 the socialism thing, I, I really believe that... So I'm a rational anarchist. I'm not a socialist, per se. I have huge leanings towards that, but as a rational anarchist, I don't recognize any... Um, any form of government being universally applicable to me anyway. But um, the, uh, I, I think the idea of socialism is actually, among young people, is making a comeback from what I can see among our kids, like your grandkids now, that generation being 14, 15, 16, because there seems to be, particularly after the, the, those lockdowns, um, there seems to be quite a prominent discussion in families um, that community is an important thing. Which, like my generation didn't get it, the generation after me didn't get it because we were all chasing the next best material thing we could get, like have a career, make money, get a good car, have holidays and all that. But I think it is actually making a comeback that community is something that is worth aspiring to be a part of, much more so than I had or the generation after me. Well, people, I think, begin to understand, say, just take a simple thing like housing. Yeah. Um, how we're so far behind and that how we can't build those houses and, uh, and that, that's just rational thing planning and we used to have a huge uh, social 
housing in Denmark, where yeah. successful housing was built, on a vast scale way back in the 60s. Was now, this is the 60s, 70s, you see. Now, and that's when there was a reaction after the, 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 the Soviet Union came about that, that like, free hospitalisation, education spread throughout Europe because they realised, feck it, if we don't do this, there's bloody armies might come back and start insisting on all this stuff. So there was a huge leap forward in the consciousness of socialism everywhere. Now, with the fall of the USSR and the fall of socialism, you have the neocons rolling all these gains back. And uh, so the, 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 say, to take the, the, the obvious one, is housing and, and, and health. And in health, we had a, a, a much better hospital system, which has been rolled back and, and privatised in sections. And, and it's all been hived off. And even in, within the public health sections, so many of the functions have been privatised out. So it's that sort of battle. And you say, well, do you believe in sources? Well, I, I believe it. There's, there's hundreds of people who are not as well off, as articulate, or as healthy as I am. And we need to take care of those people around us. It's not a big deal. Yeah. We do need all our lives. And uh, we just do it to the best of our ability. And also, uh, people uh, are, are, could be very good at, at, at some facet, which isn't great for earning money, but they should have a house. They should have a, their own door and key. And, and we can well afford to do this. So it's a matter of just on those two issues. But yeah. there's many other issues which we see all around us from. Yeah. Transport. Uh, to, no matter what we do, we look at and is it to be social or privatised? And we saw what happened in England when you had a vast privatisation of the transport system. It's in chaos. And so it, any, it, it's not that I want to go into any comparisons. It's just that this is the right way to do it. And if there's something wrong with it, let democracy change it. Yeah. Like so, you you control it to the de democratic imperative, and if it's that's not good enough, well, correct the democratic imperative. Yeah. You've got to keep polishing that. But that starts with education. It starts at a very young age, and um, the the idea of um, democracy was strongly instilled in my generation in West Berlin, yet. It really fell by the wayside as we got older. We progressed in life because that wasn't our religion. That wasn't that wasn't um, a part of our um, perception that we are democratic political beings. We were um, economic entities. We just didn't know it. Hmm. That there was so much to be done, so much to be gained, so much to be achieved. Um, we could go out and basically work on buying shit and um, I, I, I think there is um, I think there's definitely a bit of an awakening there particularly with crisis the housing crisis for young people 20 year olds or 18 year olds going out now um, starting this autumn their college course and they haven't got a place to stay and I believe if the, if the crisis is big enough then people do actually take action they come together and they investigate their own morality again. Well, it's, uh, we either accept the dictatorship of capital or we start moving back to the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah. So we're all, uh, so it, there's no choice. It, it, every single item we look at and I look at uh, through my distorted view perhaps <laughs> is, a class, is a class struggle. It's a class between labour and capital. It's a class between those who have and those who haven't. And those who have want to maintain that situation and have this mechanism of the state to suppress dissent 
and, 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 and all information and everything. So that's why I see the power of capital and the power of that dictatorship of capital and how it's become so persuasive now and powerful. That, and I look around and I don't see the young, the young people and there are millions on the street that I'd have hope. So I'm not quite sure where we go from here, but uh, you know, I'll keep drinking the champagne if I can afford it. <laughs> uh, and if sailing offshore because when for some reason out there all your head just goes clears and you see the horizons of the wind and the sea and to get involved deeply in nature and the forces of nature and then you have to kind of start to control the boat on yourself and everything like as you were saying about playing that everything's out of your head now it's just just getting from here to there and get this safely and and it's a very cleansing and I'm very privileged to be able to do it a cleansing experience to go out sailing like that and long may I can do it. I don't know how long the body will keep up. Oh sure, you're a lot Before. fitter than me anyway. Uh, well, you, I, I, every, everything, the boat gets heavier and everything gets a little more stressful and, you know, anyway. Yeah, but come here, um, so you wrote this book um, uh, about eight years ago or something like that? When we were second navigating, yeah. Uh, every night I, I, we had a little reading lamp over us yeah. here, so you see, you must realize in the tropics, it's 12 hours of darkness, 12 hours of daylight, and it changes like that. Yeah. Um, so at 12 hours reading every night, no, I'm only on watch for three hours, then Kay is on for three hours, and so we're going through. But all the time making notes, and kind of, I'm really, I'm having huge arguments with the sun and the stars and the moon and everything, <laughs> you see, and writing all this down, yeah. and putting all my thoughts together. Not that I ever thought I'd make money out of writing a book, I most certainly will not. Um, it's... Well, I've seen it, your Ferrari you arrived in. Oh, outside, absolutely, so. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so, at least my children or grandchildren will know what that crank was thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I say, well, there you are. They're, they're my thoughts. And needless to say, a lot of the stuff might be out of date, ill phrased. That's not the point. The point is that that's, that's a statement. And, how, uh, yeah. and I've had people coming back saying, how, I, how do you think of the book? He says, I threw it at the wall last night. It drove me into a temper. <laughs> I disagreed with every line. I must have a great argument with you. I said, oh, any time. But I've never seen them again. But that must feel great if there's a visceral reaction in people and oh, yeah, report some... it back to you. It's much better than, oh, that was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people said, yeah, no, it's very good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but there was one mistake. <laughs> what? What was it? Uh, some date. Oh, Jesus, I forget it. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> <laughs>